you look at Law and Order. You mentioned Law and Order earlier. It's doing the same damn thing. Right. With its commercial breaks. Here's these two detectives going through an alley. They hear a noise. They swing their flashlights toward it. It's just a rat. But no, it's not just a rat. It's a rat crawling up the leg of a corpse. And it's not just a corpse. It's the, it's the flashlights home in on the face. It's the corpse of the star witness in the trial they're working on. Dun dun. Cialis commercial. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with novelist Benjamin Percy, whose new story collection Suicide Woods comes out this week. And while Ben Percy is a respected literary storyteller, he's also distinguished himself by writing things like this. So I, I was worming my way up a ridge and glass in the meadow below. Oh, the wolves were fading in and out of sight. And that's when I saw them. Man, he's crouched low and he's running with the wolves. He stared right at me. That's actor Richard Armitage from Marvel's Wolverine the Long Night podcast, which Ben Percy writes for Marvel. He's also written issues of Batman, Nightwing, Green Arrow, Teen Titans, and James Bond comics for the likes of Marvel and DC. And his genre novels like Red Moon and The Deadlands have found a fan in none other than Stephen King, who of Deadlands wrote, quote, You will not come across a finer work of sustained imagination this year, end quote. Ben taught fiction and screenwriting for me this summer at the Paris Writing Workshop, and I talked to him in the Luxembourg Gardens near the school. What I love about the way Ben teaches is that unlike some teachers of literary writing, he doesn't criticize or shy away from genre or comic book writing. Since, as was the case with me, these were the kinds of stories that inspired him when he was a kid. In fact, Ben uses these stories to help illustrate his lessons on literary writing, a strategy he uses in his 2016 writing craft book, Thrill Me. Now, later this week, I'll drop a bonus episode that excerpts his Paris Writing Workshop lecture about screenwriting. But in this episode, we'll talk about how you can become a more skilled and entertaining storyteller, not by rejecting, but by embracing the very narrative strategies of movies and comic books. We talk about the importance of the ticking clock in stories and why villains are more important than heroes. We talk about character wounds and character wants and the universal importance of story structure, which is advice that can apply to nonfiction and travel writing, as well as movies and comic books and literary fiction. Links to all the resources he mentions, as well as the Paris Writing Workshop, can be found at rolfpotts.com deviate. You want to remember that link, since for some reason podcast platforms like Stitcher don't host live links from my show notes. Again, that's rolfpotts.com deviate. And while you're there, be sure to check out the links from my sponsor, Airtrex, which organizes affordable flight itineraries for around the world and multi-stop flights. It's a great place to dream about your next vagabonding journey, so again, check them out at airtrex.com. All right, here's some storytelling wisdom from Ben Percy, who, you'll soon find out, possesses what is possibly the deepest, most resonant voice in American literature. Let's listen in. And I don't think of myself as a novelist or short story writer, essayist or comics writer or whatever. I really consider myself a storyteller. And when you boil it all down, I guess that I'm being true to, to how I grew up and how I fell in love with narrative in that I was a sucker for the hobbits and I was in love with Tom Clancy and Tony Hillerman and Shirley Jackson and Anne Rice and Stephen King and the work of Stan Lee and Chris Claremont and Kung Fu the Legend Continues and Star Trek The Next Generation and Indiana Jones and Jaws and 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 as a result of that I don't necessarily distinguish between 
mediums. You know, I see, or hear rather, in a Johnny Cash song, the same sort of trick that I might notice in uh, some Netflix show that I'm binge watching, which might also be replicated in a technique used in, you know, the latest issue of Batman. So, <clears throat> for me, it's all, it's all good nourishment, and that extends beyond mediums and includes the genres within them. You know, I don't distinguish between high and so-called high and low art. I love an Alice Monroe story as love as as much as I love, uh, you know, the latest Mad magazine. Well, I think that's why we're talking right now because I really appreciate that aspect of your approach to writing. And I enjoyed your book, Thrill Me, which is sort of sort of uh, champions the idea that comics can teach us as much about storycraft as yeah. Ernest Hemingway. And so what I hope that listeners from to this podcast can get from this is that in a certain sense, they already know how to tell stories um, because they've been watching stories their whole lives, but may not have full permission to embrace, embrace their favorite stories. And I think it's a little bit of a different monster. And I think that there's different ways in which stories serve us from the presentation we make at work to the way we hang out with our friends and lovers. Uh, so let's just talk about stories, uh, micro and macro, in, and how they make our lives better and how we can best tell them. Sure. Um, and I was, I was, just so that the audience knows, we were at Closerie de la Lulas, which is where Hemingway hung out back in the day. I was going to make a Stephen King joke because you're famously... Um, a fan of Stephen King. Yeah, and I a big am, nerdy fan. Yeah, well, I just reread my, my journals from 1984, and I, I read at least five Stephen King novels in 1984. When I was 13, um, I read a lot of Stephen King. And then there was a point at which I felt a little bit bad for having read Stephen King, as if one should be ashamed of enjoying themselves with what they read when they're 13. Um, so... And that's, that's something that I encountered over and over again in academia. And I walked into that first creative writing classroom having grown up on stories about vampires and super spies and and uh, gumshoe detectives and you know ghosts and clowns haunting sewers and everything else barbarians with woolly underpants and walked into that first creative writing classroom and was immediately told there would be no genre fiction there would be no reading of genre fiction and no writing of genre fiction and my response was very earnest you know what else is there because I had never encountered uh, the work of Flannery O'Connor or James Baldwin or Leslie Silko or Ernest Hemingway or any of the others. You know, this literary fiction was new to me, even, and it's become, you know, in some ways I view it as a genre of its own now. But the idea that it was the genre and even the word plot hmm. was something to be ashamed of. Dirty word. Yeah, well, there's this... Snobbishness really gets my panties in a twist. <laughs> well, there's an either-or attitude in the literary world sometimes when why can't it be a both-and? Yeah. And I've even found in, in hyper-literary environments, certain hyper-literary people are so resistant to the idea of genre fiction or television, for example, that they don't even like answering questions about this. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I was at a lecture once and somebody was talking about Dickens and I brought in the TV show Lost because I felt like there was some similarities in narrative approach and the serialized way of keeping the viewer's attention. And the speaker just 
didn't even want to answer that, possibly because he hadn't watched Lost. Hmm. But also, it's, it's like it's Dickens, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a guy who, who had a broad popular appeal. It was pop fiction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, now, keeping in mind that you've read what, or you've written what could qualify as literary fiction, um, was there an arc? Was there a time when you when you sort of decided to turn your back on on pulp fiction and, and genre fiction, and you did you embrace literary fiction and realized that you should let it back into your life, or have you always been firing on all those cylinders? I feel like I'm not writing any differently than the way I've always written. You okay. know, if you look at one of my stories like Refresh, Refresh. Which is, Which is published in the Paris Review and Best American. You know, literary wankiness aura surrounds it. Uh, it's taught in classrooms and, and such. I, I'm using the same tricks in that story that I'm using in, you know, Red Moon, which is all about werewolf apocalypse. <laughs> but well, well, Refresh, Refresh, it was probably the first thing of yours that I read. Okay. Uh, and it's considered more literary, air quotes around the literary. But, guess what? First draft of that story, the father's go off to Iraq, the sons are left behind, you know, the, it's all about the inheritance of violence. And in the first draft of that story, the boys actually became their fathers. Okay. It was a work of, you could call it magical realism, you could call it fantasy, but the boys literally became their fathers by the end. They were, their hair was grain, their jowls were starting to sag, their bellies were starting to bulge like sacks of grain. They, you know, it was a literalization of metaphor. And my agent was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's already there. The essence of that is already there. Let's lose this fantasy element. So I've always been, if you, and if you look at other stories from The Language of Elk, my first collection, or Refresh, Refresh as a book, that's the title story of my second collection of stories, there's a monster in the woods story. There's a ghost story. There's a haunted, you know, there's a haunted house story in Caves of Oregon that has no ghosts in it. There, you know, it's, I was doing the same, the same things without being as overt as I am now about them. Well, I think I was, I was so oblivious to the fact that Refresh, Refresh had started out with sort of a supernatural, magical realismness that it, I was just delighted to. When I found out that you were doing comics, for example, yeah. you were doing the Werewolf podcast, but maybe that's just Wolverine podcast. Mistake. I'm sorry, the Wolverine podcast. I've also written werewolves, but Wolverine. Okay, right. Wolverine is always hairy on the outside. Right. <laughs> right. He doesn't wait for the full moon. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It's funny. Like I was never as vested in comics, it sounds like, as you were. And it's interesting how I think the reason had to do with this sort of panic that happened in the 30s and 40s. Have you heard about the anti-comics uh, panic? Well, I mean, comics early on, they're viewed as pornography. Sort of villainized in the same way that Dungeons and Dragons was villainized, you know. We or, worry or, about the, the satanic panic that accompanied Dungeons and Dragons and the, you know, the polluting effect that this might have on our young minds. A lot of people felt the same way about comics and you know, their cheap, tawdry influence on kids. It is. I mean, gangster rap is another uh, example that, that created panic and, and, and led to legislation. And actually, I think they, there was legislation against comics back in the day. The upshot of me telling you this is that I think my mom sort of came of age as a mother out of that era oh, yeah, and yeah. never let me read comics, right? So I read Stephen King, but I read that when I was a little bit older and I could sort of take some Stephen King from my aunt's house and my mom didn't have to know about it. Right. Whereas when I was six years old or eight years old or ten years old, I really wasn't reading comics in that sense. Oh, 
I feel bad for young Rolf <laughs> because I was obsessed with them. And I, I, I can remember the first novel I read, even though it wasn't the first novel I read, but I can remember clearly, distinctly falling in love with The Hobbit in fourth grade. But I can remember every single comic that I read, more or less, from the time I was four. Hmm. So those were really like my generative reading experiences. and. I grew up in a small town. I mean, I moved around a lot, but at this particular time, I was in a small town outside of Eugene, Oregon, called Crow. It was a town rural enough that there wasn't a grocery store, there was a mercantile. My mom would deposit me at the end of the aisle, and she would, you know, trundle up and down the aisles with the grocery cart and fill them up. And if I, as long as I was good, you know, I could keep one of the comics that I'd been reading that I'd pulled down from the spinner rack above me. There used to be spinner racks everywhere. Spinner racks in grocery stores, spinner racks in gas stations. Comics were you know, always, always within arm's reach. And I would go, I later on had a comic book shop I would go to in Bend, Oregon, Pegasus, uh, Pegasus Books. But up to that, up to that point, you know, it was always just like, wherever we went, there was a comic waiting for me. And I would read them over and over and over again until they literally fell apart in my hands. And it was Man-Thing. It was... It was uh, Batman, it was Spider-Man, it was the X-Men, it was Warlord. Warlord for a long time was my favorite. That was a, that was a fantasy series, sort of similar, equivalent to Conan. And how old were you when you were reading this? It was four years old on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I had a brief moment, oh, I shouldn't say brief, you know, it was a few, few years in college where I had to make a decision, you know, it was comic books or Keystone Light, and I chose Keystone Light for maybe six years, but then I, then <laughs> right. I started to get back into comics again, and this is really when I became interested in the more mature comics that were being put out by Vertigo, and okay. I missed out on a lot of those as well, you know, like The Sandman, which has become one of my favorite, not just comics, but just favorite reading experiences of my life, Sandman, uh, Saga of the Swamp Thing, Alan Moore's, um, Preacher, uh, you know, Scalped, The Unwritten, uh, Transmetropolitan. There are all these just... It's sort of like the HBO of comics. That's what Vertigo hmm. was for a while. In your class, you, you gave some advice or maybe even you just referred to a technique that you use in class sometimes. And I might use that as a, sort of a way to transition into practical techniques that we can use as writers to tell stories in a way that keeps them interesting. Yep. The technique that you mentioned is that sometimes if somebody has a literary story with a lot of conversations and exposition you have them storyboarded as if it was a comic book right. and if nothing is happening action-wise then they should probably reconsider those beautifully written expository conversational sentences. Yeah, yeah, you know, like think about what is actually, think about the narr horizontal progress of your narrative. What is actually happening? Are they sitting at a kitchen table the whole time? You know, Raymond Carver pulled it off and what we talk about when we talk about love, but uh, like, what is, what is the movement of your story? Could you create some sort of situation that makes things progress more intensely, right? Can you create what I guess you might call a lower order goal or a micro finish line within the story, within the scene? Because otherwise, sometimes I'm having people panel their stories. I'm saying, look, make this a graphic novel, make this a comic book. And it's like, paragraph, I mean, panel one is they're sitting at the kitchen table drinking. Paragraph seven on page three, they're still sitting there. Paragraph, you know, panel, uh, panel seven on page seven, they're still at the table. Maybe somebody's refilling a drink. 
it just becomes that much more evident when I force them into this visual exercise. So one idea is, you know, triangulate the moment, create some task, like maybe instead of just sitting on this park bench or sitting at this table or sitting at a bar. And I would say that every single scene I have ever read in a workshop that involved a bar sucks. Okay. To the point where I want to like forbid people from using bars in their stories in the same way I want to forbid them from using the word soul. Soul? Soul, soul is a forbidden word. Okay. It's always some, you know, ridiculous abstraction of feeling. So, you know, you have a scene instead of being set in a bar, at the bar, at, at the bar itself while they're, you know, sipping their beers and having some sort of epiphanic conversation. What if they're, I don't know, what if they're on the porch? And this is a moment when uh, marriage is on the rocks and they're thinking about, you know, separation. What if they're on the porch and they're painting it, right? So the way that somebody accidentally knocks down a wasp nest, the way that somebody scrapes the old paint chips, the way that somebody falls off the ladder, the way that somebody tips over a paint can so it spills red between them. These things talk around the issue. They create a misdirection. They create a goal that pushes the narrative forward. They create a way of, you know, there's something about talking around a thing that makes it more powerful. And their, their actions, their gestures during this moment, instead of talking directly about their estrangement, they're instead trying to fix up this house, but maybe they're failing. Hmm. That makes it more tense. That makes it more meaningful. Uh, Emily Dickinson says, tell it slant. And I think it's a way of telling it slant. But it's also a way, just when it comes to pure suspense, give them something to do. Give them something to do besides talk. The goal of a conversation, I think, is there are exceptions to this, but the goal of a conversation is rarely enough. It feels like this is something that you see in television and movies, but it's especially evident like in a procedural show like Law and Order or CSI, yeah. where anytime they're interviewing a witness, it's expository. But the witness, like, after I watched Law and Order for a couple of seasons, it's like, why don't these people stop working when they're being interviewed yeah. by the detective? No, no, TV does a great job of this because TV is visual. Right? right? So, so, so you look at Game in, of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. Oh, give, give us an example. Game of Thrones. People have sex while talking about exposition. So it's called, it's sexposition. Yeah. Right? So yeah. Littlefinger is, for example, having uh, these prostitutes audition for his brothel. While they're doing that, he's talking about the politics of the realm. It's the politics of the realm thing that I hated to see in workshop. <laughs> but it's really interesting because there's basically a three-way going on. It's about power dynamics. That's why it matters. It's not just okay. him, you know, luxuriating in the TNA. It's about power dynamics. And that's what he's talking about as well. So he has power over these yeah, women. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And that's what he's trying to orchestrate over the realm. So that's why, that's why it matters. Right. And that's, that's almost... It feels like as writers, we can look to television and movies to get tips. And I use a lot of movie metaphors in my class. I know that you do as well. Mm -hmm. And I think it was actually trying to write a screenplay when I was young and had failed to write a travel book that I realized how important structure is. And I want to get to structure in a second because it feels like that's one thing that literary writers don't like to talk about too much. No. Um, I think it's because they don't get it. Yeah, but, but yet it seems essential, you know. You look at uh, comics. Comics is great as this as well. You'll never see, I mean, I'll say you rarely see Batman sitting down and having an earnest conversation with Robin. <laughs> Instead, Batman and Robin are kicking Scarecrow's ass or the Joker's ass while maybe they're having a conversation about, nobody just kicks ass either. 
Like, you don't just have a fight scene. You have a fight scene while talking. Right. So they're kicking Scarecrow's ass, but really it's about fear, because Scarecrow's all about fear. But really, beyond that, it's about Robin trying to break away from Batman and get out of his shadow to become Nightwing, but he's afraid to do so. That's what that conversation's all about, triangulating around battling Scarecrow. If you look at the rogues gallery of Batman, which is the best rogues gallery of all, each of these villains represents something about Batman. And that story should be about that thing. So if Batman is fighting Two-Face, for instance, Two-Face is about duality. So that story really should be about that eternal question. Is Batman the man and Bruce Wayne is the mask? Or is Bruce Wayne the man and Batman is the mask? That's what every Two-Face story should be about. Scarecrow story should be about fear. The fear that Bruce Wayne experienced in Crime Alley when his parents were killed. The fear that Bruce Wayne experienced when he fell into that shaft and the bats attacked him. That fear that he has since mastered and uses a weapon against the villains of Gotham. You know, and then you've got Freeze, who is a manifestation of Bruce's coldness. And on and on and on. You go through all those villains, they're supposed to be about something that he's struggling with inside himself. Yeah, that's, that's something that never occurred to me, but it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, right? Yeah. And it, it, I guess it's a kind of storytelling that goes back a long time. And, you know, you can trace back your fascination with writing to Stephen King, for example. Um, does it also go back to, to Homer and, and, and Gilgamesh and other stories? Or, or like, where does your... Sure, I love Norris Smith okay. especially. Uh, and there's something about... I've always been sort of a medieval nerd. Okay. So I love Arthurian tales. and I, however, am not quite as familiar. Like, if you go back uh, to Homer's Odyssey and such, uh-huh. I, can't, I can't claim to be an expert on that. But I know the same rhythms are being used in stories over and over and over again, where if you look at what's going on right now with Marvel and DC and, you know, um, the Amer- American gods, you could call them, hmm. You know, this American mythology is just one big wheel of story that's been turning since the beginning of human, human history. And, and you've been on the country and the western side of the DC Marvel Universe, right? You've, uh, you've written for both? I've written for both, yeah. Marvel right now, I was a DC guy before. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's talk about structure, um, and then I might even do some rapid-fire questions about things you brought up in your class, because I, I find them interesting. I think they're good for listeners to know in terms of how a story is structured. You say in your book and in your class that structure underlies all stories. You might have literary stories or pulp stories. You might have Pulitzer-winning stories or science fiction award-winning stories, but they're like the human body has organs. Yeah. And Mother Teresa is different from Mr. T, but at the end of the day, they're both people. <laughs> That's right? it, yeah. You wouldn't mistake Over here is Cher other. and over here is Donald Trump. Mr. T and Mother Teresa, absolutely. You know, the vascular system is the same. The skeletal structure is relatively the same. We're all put together in just about the same way. In the same way, like, here's Rocky. Here's Steel Magnolias. Here's Princess Bride. Here's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> right. It's the same bones and the same organs. Yes. It's the so spirit that, that you inhabit it with that's different. Yeah. And so that, that, that in mind, let's talk about some of the tricks of the trade. Um, because you talked about, you know, actually we could start with any of these, but maybe the idea of transformation, of, of characters having a core wound of transformation and the concept of life sucks. <laughs> and I loved when you brought that up in class because that at the beginning of Star Wars, life sucks for yeah, Luke Skywalker. That's right. right. And in so many stories, 
life does suck for the protagonist. What a great way. It doesn't have to be the end of the world, but basically there's an inciting incident by which life begins to suck less. So let's talk about the idea of core wounds, the life sucks situation and the need yeah, for Yeah, I mean, there are exceptions to the life sucks formula. Uh-huh. Like Gladiator, interestingly, hmm. starts off with him at the peak, you know, at a summit. But generally speaking, life sucks. Well, eventually life sucks because his family Eventually does. life sucks. Right, okay. But at the start of Gladiator. Gotcha, It's gotcha. great. <laughs> he's, you know, he's Superman, right. essentially. But, yeah, you look at Luke Skywalker, you look at Harry Potter, you look at Dorothy, you know, on her hog farm in Kansas. You look at Cinderella, living with her aptly named evil stepsisters and evil stepmother. Life sucks. At number four, Privet Drive. Life sucks. On Tatooine, as a moisture farmer on this desert planet. And there's, you know, something that they long for. Dorothy sings somewhere over the rainbow way out there in the same way, looking towards the horizon and dreaming of something else, dreaming of something better in the same way that Luke stares at those twin moons and dreams of joining the rebellion. So life sucks. You know, you open up with this sense of environment. You open up with a sense of character. You usually have a sense of their wants and their weaknesses. And then trouble. Right, which in a screenplay is minute 15, which translates to page 15, when the inciting incident knocks everything out of orbit and opens up this possibility for the character to chase after something, to have agency, to change. Uh, and what was the beginning of that question again? Oh, uh, well, there's, there's life sucks, and there's, there's core wound. Wounds. Core wound, right, yeah. yeah. So the character has a typically a core wound, and I know that people are multi dimensional, I know that they have conflicting desires but generally speaking like when you have a character in fiction or a memoir it boils down to a core wound let's look at uh, memoir so we're talking so much about fiction Cheryl Strayed's Wild core wound of Cheryl Strayed's Wild is her mother dies that is her core wound that is the reason the story exists at all that she is going on this quest this trek she's not going to Mordor Right? She's headed to the end of the Pacific Crest Trail. But she is trying to overcome that trauma. And oftentimes, everybody has that. Everybody, you know, Ahab has his lost leg. Uh, if you look at Captain Quint and Jaws, he, the Indianapolis sunk and he was on board it. And 1,100 men into the water and only a few hundred came out. All those men were torn apart by sharks. He lived, he's on a suicide mission just like Ahab, to bring justice to the ocean. Uh, if you look at Batman, he has his crime alley. You know, Batman would not exist without crime alley. And in fact, there are so many different stories about, say, Flash using the speed force to go back in time to either save his parents from, or his mother from reverse Flash, or to save Batman's parents from crime alley. And you know what? Whenever they come back to the future, everything is fucked because <laughs> Look at the world. Without Batman, Gotham is overrun. Right. Without the Flash, because the Flash never existed because his parents, ne his mother never died. Hmm. You know, uh, Central City is in chaos, and and so you you have to have that 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 core wound, whether it's sleepless in Seattle or lame is or whatever else, where that is the thing that the story springs out of and that the character is trying to overcome. Right. Some of the concepts here: ticking clock. Yeah. Um, and then obstacles and, and higher order versus lower order goals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, you're always better off if you have a ticking clock of some sort. If you look at 24, 
Jack Bauer taught us that. Mm-hmm. There's that t- clicker at the end, edge of the screen, burning its way down to zero. And everybody's leaning forward as a result of that. And, uh, you know, you think about, you think about the way that you can create tension in a narrative. Let's say Cinderella didn't have until midnight the <laughs> night of the ball. What if she had until midnight two weeks from now? Right. Not as interesting of a story. Yeah. Uh, you look at David Benioff's 25th hour. He has one day to settle his business before he goes to prison. What if he had a month? Not as interesting. What if in Superbad, the two kids weren't trying to lose their virginity by the time they graduated high school, a few weeks away? What if instead they were waiting until they got their PhD in, you know, Germanic literature? <laughs> not, quite as, not quite as compelling. So anytime you can get a ticking clock into the situation, you're better off. And, you know, you think about what Hitchcock talks about. Uh, Bunch of guys sit down at a table. They start talking about baseball, say. Five minutes later, a bomb goes off that's nested underneath the table. You have 10 seconds of tension. But if they sit down at the table and they're about to engage in their conversation, but somebody puts up their finger and says, there's a bomb underneath the table and it's gonna go off in five minutes. Then you have created a situation that is incredibly gripping. So. Oftentimes I'm trying to think about that. Like, how can I put the bomb under the table? Right. Metaphorically put the bomb under the table. You mentioned in your book, too, about the time frames have to be succinct because kids get excited about the advent calendar yeah, yeah, yeah. when it's a month away. But they don't get excited about advent in yeah. February, right? Right. Imagine if I use a year-long advent calendar. Right, Like, right. that's you'd just be chocolate overkill. Right, yeah. <laughs> and Christmas would get obnoxious. But it's a month, and advent calendar yeah. is a is a month and that's an appropriate shelf life yeah. for the excitement so you always have to think about the shelf life of the, of the tension you're creating and on the, usually the tr- best trick to do is okay figure out the shelf life and then on the other side of that expiration date there should be a bigger mystery another mm-hmm. ticking clock essentially okay like, let's say it's uh, i don't know a post story he's always got ticking clocks pit in the pendulum ticking clock uh you know casca von montiato ticking clock as the wall is being mm. built Telltale Heart, Taking Clock. What if that story wasn't a story but a novel? That would get really boring. Hmm. Oh, the heart is still beating under the floor. Right. Instead, what if after, if it's a novel, if it's 200 pages long, after those 10 pages that are the short story, what if, like, the, the body does actually wake up and crashes through the floorboards? Now it's a story about zombie apocalypse, which Poe easily could have written about. Right. So then the Telltale Heart gets bigger stakes, right? Somewhere they're going to discover his manuscript of Poe's Big Zombie uh, trilogy. (laughs) The Telltale Hearts. (laughs) You mentioned this, though, as a a turning point in your novel writing because there is a shorter story like The Cask of Amontillado, but you mentioned how when you first were writing novels, they weren't quite as successful because you kept treating chapters like self contained Mm -hmm. little problem solution beads on a necklace when in fact um they should really tease the next chapter all the way through yeah 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 just i was doing it all wrong introducing trouble and resolving trouble every 15 pages where what i should have been doing and what i eventually figured out was it's this thing i call you can call juggling i call it the dance of the flaming chainsaws and 
the thing that helped me realize this was the same thing that helped me realize structure when I was in grad school when it came to short stories. You know, I read a Flannery O'Connor story five, six times to emotionally detach myself from it. Because I knew Flannery O'Connor was really good at structure. And then the seventh or eighth time that I read it, I mapped it out. And I figured out its component parts. And then I tried to write a story based on those component parts that had the same skeleton but were completely different. Hmm. And I did this a few times and it just clicked. And I they later gave that as an assignment to my own students. I would have them choose a short story that they admired, figure out the beats of it paragraph by paragraph, borrow the beats from it, make their own story, then write an essay explaining how the story was made out of the, out of the genesis of it. Mm -hmm. So later on I did that with novels. And at the time I wanted to write, for example, uh, Red Moon. I wanted to write a big book that was a thriller. So how do you write a big book? that is compulsively readable. Everybody at the time was reading the same book, which was Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So I read Girl with the Dragon Tattoo three times. And the third time, I mapped it out. And this is what I discovered. First, it's not the greatest book in the world, but the story math of this book is quite brilliant. Hmm. So let's say every character had five things. So it's a two-hander, meaning it's a story about, on the one hand, Mikhail Blomkvist, and on the other hand, Elizabeth Salander. It's their story. So Mikael Blomkis has five things. Elizabeth Salander Elizabeth has five things. Five things. things they want or five things they need to do? Five, five troubling things that they keep... Five chainsaws, let's okay. call them, okay. that they're juggling. So one of them is, for Mikael Blomkis, professional problems. You know, he's on the outs with his magazine, Millennium. Accompanying that, these aren't mutually exclusive. They bleed together. Legal problems. The reason he's having trouble professionally is because he wrote an article and didn't research it properly and he's being sued and he has to go to prison. Hmm. So he has legal problems. He also has financial problems, not mutually exclusive, right? Because of this. He also has marital problems because, or, or I should say familial problems. He's on the outs with his daughter as a result of the divorce. He also has, uh, you know, romantic problems. He's having an affair with a woman who's married. And then he gets in with Elizabeth Salander who's quite complicated herself emotionally. And then he has serial killer problems. So let's say he has seven problems. Each of these things, and Elizabeth Salander has seven of her own. So each of these things I would give a sticky note, different colored sticky note to. Periwinkle blue might be serial killer problems. Pink might be romantic problems. Green might be money problems, whatever. I'd st stick one of these sticky notes every time I encounter one of these problems. So Right on the page where it happens. Yep. So okay. let's say romantic problems, pink. Page 25 comes up again on page 50, comes up on page on page 75, comes up again on page, you know, 115, comes up again on page 137, whatever. I go through the book like this, and it just became peacocky in its appearance, like fanned with feathers, essentially, sticky notes. And I realized that there was a, a math to all of this. And the way it worked is, you know, you introduce this problem, and usually what happens is it br you bring it to a head. And the audience feels peril at this flaming chainsaw that's spinning towards them. And then you cut away from it. You don't resolve it, you cut away from it. Hmm. So here we go with this problem. And the chapter breaks right as we reach this moment of emotional or physical peril. It's unresolved. And it doesn't come back for another 50 pages. In the meantime, here's this other problem that suddenly swung into view. And now we're dealing with that. But then before that's resolved, it swings out of view. And you look at Law and Order, you mentioned Law and Order earlier, it's doing the same damn thing. Right. 
with his commercial breaks. Here's these two detectives going through an alley. They hear a noise. They swing their flashlights toward it. It's just a rat. But no, it's not just a rat. It's a rat crawling up the leg of a corpse. And it's not just a corpse. It's the... As the flashlights home in on the face, it's the corpse of the star witness in the trial they're working on. Dun-dun. Cialis commercial. <laughs> So you look at that, you look at H.G. Wells and the Island of Dr. Moreau. First chapter, it's about a bunch of dudes on a boat. The storm hits, the boat sinks. End of chapter. Next chapter, three dudes on a dinghy. The only survivors. You know, debris everywhere. They start to fight. Two of them fall overboard. They drown. End of chapter. Next chapter, single dude on a dinghy. He's feverish. He's sunburned. Sharks are circling. He may be hallucinating, but it appears a ship is moving towards him. End of chapter. Next chapter. He wakes up in the belly of the ship. He's weak, addled, goes up to the deck, discovers that the crew that, that saved him is a bunch of mutants. They're half man, half animal. End of chapter. Right. That is the way you break up scenes in short stories. That's the way you break up chapters in novels. And there's just this turnstile of mysteries. There's this turnstile of trouble. There's a dance of the flaming chainsaws, however you want to put it. And that seems to be, for me, the key to orchestrating a larger novel, especially. Something that I can appreciate in fiction that obviously is a central part of travel writing is sense of place. Why is sense of place important in storytelling? Yeah, yeah, we've talked a little bit about this, right? The way that if a story seems to happen nowhere, it seems not to happen at all. The way that you want a place to be there for... I mean, purely for stability, to start with. Make, give your characters a stage to traipse across. Make us feel anchored. Make this world dissolve and this other one take over. But more than that, setting should become a character in the story. And the setting could, should contribute to the story in some way. But to the atmosphere, to the emotion of the story, but also to the, the obstacles that can be overcome. Uh, you know, I... Oftentimes tell my students, all right, if you're a beginning writer, I want you to look towards your own backyard. I want you to look at your own 40 acres, because that's the place you know best. Don't give me the story about New York if you went there on spring break once. Just give me the story about, let's say, uh, Waverly, Iowa, or whatever. And when I was teaching in Iowa, I remember giving this exercise to my students, and the first thing they would always say is, there's nothing interesting about where I'm from. Right. And I'd tell them, you know, look closer. Look closer in. We'd start to come up with stories about, all right, what about that time when the flood came and you saw somebody canoeing down Main Street? What about that time when there was that f the flood came and the windows uh, to the basement, the well windows to the basement shattered and filled up the entire basement right to the ceiling? and your grandparents barely got out alive. What about, what about the way that a tornadoes come down occasionally to vacuum up you know, neighborhoods? Or the way they cut through corn cornfields like an elephant trunk? What about the way that cornfields go marching off into the distance or the clouds stack up like mountains or the way that Ames, Iowa has this garbage burning facility in the center of the town they're so proud of they put it right behind the bandstand at Central Park? What about the slaughterhouse down the road that makes the air smell like meat? What about, like, what are all the things that you can cultivate and use? The mythology of your town, the, the geography of your town, the history of your town, the culture of your town, the politics of your town. How can all those things come together and inform the story? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm reading The Dark Net. Um, oh, thanks. And uh, it's in Portland, which, yeah. which is a place you know. You know, it, um, I, 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 it would probably be a good... 
setting for any story, but it's the Pearl District. Powell's Books appears in there. Yeah. Um, we're sitting in Paris right now, and I think visiting Paris is going to give you a stronger sense for telling a story here because there's parts of Paris where you hear more as much American as you do French, American English as right. you do French. And in a way, that's more interesting for a story to play out in a place that's sort of compromised by a commercial tourism Mm -hmm. factors or the banlieue where you might go and you can hear four different African languages in French but very little American English and so I think that that specificity uh, can really inform the yeah, story. Yeah, it's not just does this take place in Paris, it's just look at Paris, look at how fragmented it is, mm. you know, I'm out at Bercy Village which looks like some crappy version of America. I'm over in Montmartre, which has a completely different vibe to central Paris in the way it's such an artist community and used to be a rural setting that drew painters like Van Gogh and Picasso and Renoir and you know it's a red light district now and then you have the tourists all crushed together in central Paris which you know the city there looks like a work of art itself and the way it's so carefully orchestrated and then mm. you go out to another section and uh, it's all uh, you know, Indians or Middle Eastern, I'm in the Jewish quarter, I'm in the gay quarter, I'm, you know, you know, walking around the city and street by street sometimes it's completely different. And I love that. Or you're in the catacombs, right? And right. <laughs> underneath this exquisite work of art that is Central Bears, here are all these corpses arranged right. artistically. It's, yeah. Then, and so it's not just, is this in Naples, Florida, or is this in Paris, Texas, or is this in Chicago? It's also like within that within that place, there's at least one side of the tracks or another. Yeah, it feels As like... the outsiders taught us, the socias and the greasers, right? uh, That's an Oklahoma story, yeah. right? Yeah, it feels like that specificity counts. I mean, in travel stories, this comes up a lot because you can't just spoon-feed the cliché baguettes and, and berets version of Paris every time. You have to find something that's true and real and counterintuitive about a place. Right. This is part of research. And I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned in your book for research, you, you've, you've studied taxidermy. Did you wear a pregnancy suit once? <laughs> I did. Okay. I did. Yeah. Although I exaggerated how long I wore that pregnancy suit. Okay. okay. My nonfiction is always more fictional. Okay. <laughs> right, right. And you did a water diet, is that correct? Uh, I was on a cleanse diet, a detox diet. Okay. For a month. It was about 30 days. And it was, uh, I could only eat vegetables, fruits, and drink water. So what, what is some of the more idiosyncratic research you've done and how has it helped your storytelling? Well, I mean, I love field research, right? Where I'm going to go to Oregon and I'm going to climb one of the largest trees in the country and, and uh, spend the night in it, sleep in it, you know, in a hammock. And, you know, you have to use a crossbow to get up to the, hmm. to the lowest branches. And, you know, I woke up with an owl staring down at me. And, it was, it was uh, you know, I ate an app, I ate a blackberry pie at 150 feet. <laughs> and I love. Does, uh, does this make it into your fiction? No, 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 yeah. Okay. But, but there are certain things to do. I oftentimes pitch nonfiction as a way of researching my fiction mm -hmm. so that I can double dip on the economics of it. Mm -hmm. So let's say I want to write a story about, I don't know, historical fiction topic. I will oftentimes pitch uh, magazine articles that will then take me to the place or that, so that I can, you know, immerse myself. Mm -hmm. And I get paid for that article, but then I also get the information I need for my, for my novel. Um, or sometimes it's just accidental. You go someplace for an article and somehow that feeds into, it gives you 20 different story ideas as a result. Right. That's why I love getting away from the desk, you know, 
You overhear something, you encounter something by accident, and then just opens up all these doors in your brain. But research is essential. You know, when I was researching Red Moon, which is a werewolf novel, mm -hmm. it's a werewolf novel, right? You ever need to research that? I did. Huh. I spent time with a brewmaster. I spent time with government agents. I spent time with politicians. I spent time with animal researchers who specialize in animal-borne pathogens. Okay. Because I wanted, you know, I think like if you have a weird subject matter, I think you need to be more particular in your details for there to be believability. Hmm. So, uh, when it came to the the disease itself. Um, I have something springing out of the wolf population that is equivalent to mad cow disease or is equivalent to uh, chronic wasting disease in, in deer where it's misfolded prions, where it's these misfolded proteins that uh, you know are coming from the, the source and infecting the host and sort of changing their biochemistry and I tried to make this process as believable as possible. And you know I was sitting down with people from Iowa State University. I was sitting down with people from the USDA labs, and I filled like four yellow legal tablets, hmm. trying to authenticate, you know, being a werewolf, which could be as simple as the moon gets full and somebody turns into a wolf, but that's not the way I did it. I think this is, it's easy to forget the importance of research, which obviously is part of journalism and travel writing and other nonfiction genres, but there's a way in which this, this, you can really make a, a world real, I would imagine, yeah. through either you know the personal experience of growing up in a place or knowing a certain job or industry or going out and, and, and researching it. There's something especially I found fruitful about interviewing people because if you go hang out at a taxidermy studio, if you go drive around with a trucker, I mean you can get stuff from blogs, you can get stuff from documentaries, you can get stuff from books and movies, but something about just listening where they have their own language and they have their own curiosities. If I'm with the taxidermist, it's not just about the glass eyeballs and the polyurethane forms and the formaldehyde. It's also about these terms they use, this language they use that you're not gonna get anywhere else. Hmm. Yeah, I would imagine there's sort of an equivalent of obvious culture too there, the pecking orders and-, and Yeah, and, uh, inside baseball hierarchies and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, you, um, you talked about the idea of getting away from your desk and since we're, we're nearing the hour here, I was thinking about ending on talking about your work habits and how you make this work. Yeah. Um, because you, you're no longer a university professor, correct? Nope. No, yeah. I quit about six years ago. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're a full-time writer between all, all of your various disciplines. How do you make that work in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of conceptualizing, dreaming up, and researching and actually writing those stories? Yeah. Yeah, it's a hustle. I mean, I, I don't do one thing, as we mentioned before. You know, I'm not just a novelist. I'm also a comics writer. I also write articles. I also write essays. I also do these audio podcasts. I also am pitching screenplays and TV shows. And, you know, I, I make money from a lot of different sources. And I'm always juggling as a result. And I couldn't, I don't think I could make a living just as a novelist. Especially right now, because the industry is a little shaky. Uh... But that's one source of my income that's long-term, you know? I might be working on this novel, or if it's a trilogy, these novels over three years, four years. And I, ha I know that that, economically, I know that money's there. So here I am, maybe every week, 
or sometimes for a week at a time or two weeks at a time just focusing on that novel. But then I always have, then I have the short-term money, which is the comics, you know. I write this issue, I get this much money. So then I also might make royalties later on off the comics, but right now I'm just concentrating on the page rate. How much am I getting for each of these issues? So, all right, I factor that into my month. I need to write at least three comics this month. So I'll do those three comics. Maybe each of those comics takes roughly four days to write, right? So, um, or three days to write. Uh, what about this article? I can, the research for an article might take a long time. It usually doesn't take me very long to write nonfiction. Hmm. The research process is a lot, usually, you know, more strenuous than the actual composition. Okay. And parts of this that comes from me mapping everything out in advance. Okay. And so, you know, I, I on a week-to-week -week basis, I'm sort of thinking about, all right, what do I need to do? And I usually have a pad and I have a list. And I'm just ch 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 checking off that list as I go. And every week it's a new list. And all right, I need to work at least. I need to have these two days dedicated to the novel. I can't keep putting it off or else I'm going to be screwed later on. And I'm going to lose touch with it. All right, I need to write a pitch for this thing that may come to fruition or may not. But it won't be actual work for six months. I'm going to write the pitch now. And if I actually get the pitch accepted, it'll be something in six months. Do I have something in six months that's going to interfere with that? And so I'm like looking at, I'm looking six months ahead or a year ahead sometimes. I'm also looking at what's due next week. I'm also looking at what's due two years from now. It's like, it's, it can be crazy. So it's like a 3D jigsaw puzzle of planning. I'm kind of a psychopath, you know. I write, I generally, generally speaking, I write eight hours a day. But I also write sometimes 14 to 16 hours a day. Wow. If it's, if it's required, if it's required of me. Right. Now, the way I try to do it is I sit down. As soon as the kids get on the bus at 7 a.m., and I write until 4 when they get home, and then I'm a dad okay. until they go to bed, and then if it's busy time, I'm back at work. After your kids go to bed? Yeah. Okay. Ideally, that's not what I'm doing. Right. I don't want to do that, right. but sometimes I just have to because the deadline is pressing. Would, would six-year-old Ben be stoked at what Ben is doing now? Uh, six-year-old Ben would have no clue how this happened. Okay. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very grateful and lucky, and I try to remind myself on a daily basis that when things, even when they get strings, get stressful, or the rejections pile up because the rejections still pile up. I'm still like, you know what? This is this is pretty amazing. I'm a fortunate guy. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to ever be a whiner. I don't want to ever take anything for granted. I want to recognize that it's a pretty amazing thing. I can put food on the table, support my family uh, by making shit up through storytelling. <laughs> for, for my readers who might be daunted by the idea of, of sort of working 60-hour weeks telling stories, but, but want to make storytelling a more part of their life, um, where do they start? How, how can you, even, even if, it's just, if it's just journal entries or, or something, how, how can you yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's create a practice One thing that I would do is I would rec recognize this unfortunate fact. I promise there's something inspirational at the end of it. Nobody cares if you're a writer, okay? Like, your, your roommate doesn't care, your neighbor doesn't care, your cousin doesn't care, your colleagues don't care. The onus is on you. So, what that means is you need to create a schedule for yourself. And, on the other hand, even though these other people might be confused as to why you want to write or just marginally interested or whatever else, you can actually make them part of the conversation by saying, all right, spouse, all right, roommate, all right, friend, I am going to be writing 
on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings from 9 a.m. until 11 a.m. And that's going to be my writing schedule. And if you say that to them, if you communicate to them, that to them, a, a few things happen. One, they hold you accountable. Hmm. Like, I thought you were going to be writing right now. Yeah. And they shame you, which is good. Uh, the other thing is that they're not perplexed or annoyed with you, which is this something I figured out early on in my marriage. If you just like, you're stirring the spaghetti sauce one moment and you're gone the next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm inspired. You know, instead yeah. you you have a schedule. And the other thing that comes out of that, too, is the fact that if you have a schedule, if you make a promise to yourself, a contract to yourself, all right, whether it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings, whether it's Tuesday, Thursday mornings, mornings are always best, by the way. Sometimes you don't have, can't do mornings, so at night, whatever. You find the time, to, your lunch break, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, Bram Stoker wrote on napkins during during work breaks you know that's why Dracula is an epistolary novel made up of fragments because he just had these little moments to rush out stories but you find what works for you and if you ideally have a stable schedule for the writing you sit down ready to write because you've been thinking about that moment you've been thinking about all right in six hours I'm going to be writing in four hours I'm going to be writing in one hour I'm going to be writing and it's there Right? You're not just staring at white space. You've been turning this thing over in your head, anticipating this moment. And you also, in a weird way, it starts to become Pavlovian. You know, the bell rings, the dog salivates. You sit down at these certain times, and the, the biochemistry is there. You're ready to go. Your imagination just unleashes itself. Suppose if you're, or you're radically writing, it's a lot harder usually to get into it. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Benjamin Percy's new book, Suicide Woods, and his writing craft book, Thrill Me, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.